We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the Salt Radio Network. I'm Joe Quinn. Neil Bradley. <laughs> Thank you, Joe, for the intro. Hi, everyone. So, uh, hopefully, we won't have any technical problems tonight because our internet connection has been really crappy all day. Um, but uh, let's hope it is. Uh, if it's not, there's nothing we can do about it. Um, but, yeah. So welcome to all our listeners and our chatters and stuff uh, from wherever you are or whenever you are listening to this. Uh, tonight we are going to be talking about, once again, the state of the world. Because this is where we live and we have to deal with it. And it's in our faces all the time, unless you're one of those people who buries your head somewhere where you can't see what's going on. Uh, but I'm assuming the one listening to the show is that person. But you may have noticed there are quite a lot of people who are doing that, walking around with their heads buried somewhere where they shouldn't be. Um, so this isn't for those people because they're not listening. It's for you who are listening who already know some of this stuff. But hopefully we'll bring some new information to your ears this evening. So yes, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And there's some evidence for that. We will discuss some of it forthwith. Take it away, Neil. <laughs> Very good. Uh, yeah, well, the big thing that's going on is uh, simultaneously we've got major meetings being held, various different summits. I say simultaneously. I say over the last 10 days in total, we've seen the Apple Bilderberg meeting conference uh, the G7 summit group of seven nations a major EU summit in Brussels the nuclear talks in Iran are coming of nuclear talks are going around are coming to a head they probably won't but they've set a deadline for the end of this month and of course the same for the Greece's debt supposedly is to be the issues to be settled. Same thing by the end of this month. Also this week, the major Pacific and Atlantic trade zones that the U.S. is trying to create, Obama's got had to personally go to Congress in the United States to seek uh, approval, which he got for basically giving him a kind of executive role to fast track, speed up their push to lock down this trade system that would, they hope, uh, forever after convince no nation to uh, go with China and Russia's alternative vision of how to do business in the world. So it's all happening, and it's all a bit confusing because on the one hand, it's 
all the same, and on the other hand, the same leaders when they fly from one meeting to the next are kind of wearing different hats. Uh, I, I reckon they themselves don't. I mean, I'm sure they try to plan how they what they'll say and what they'll agree to and or not, but they probably get confused as to which issue they're now dealing with because you get a situation where uh, they're talking about uh, transparency and openness and democratic blah, blah, blah at the G7 summit in Bavaria just a few days ago. And in the background, real uh, wheelers and dealers in power of the same group of seven Western nations that the, the leaders represented are flying off to Vienna across the border to attend a build another Bilderberg summit, which is officially just a unimportant get-together of some people who happen to have a lot of influence in the West, which the media still doesn't report on, or if it does, it does it just to uh, play down any kind of role it has in shaping world affairs. And uh, here we are again this year. Another one has come around. Uh, maybe we want to start with that one. Start with what? The Bilderberg Conference. What about the Bilderbergers? Did you see the list of attendees? No, that doesn't interest me because I can assume it's, it's exclusively. It always is. Although maybe something caught your eye? No. Okay. No, the topics. No idea what that was, but there you go. Carry on. <laughs> Uh, I think that was some relevant movie quote. That, that <laughs> was. Uh, some human interjecting into our. Uh... Go ahead. Uh, artificial intelligence and cybersecurity. And lo and behold, just in the week prior to this being on the agenda, there's a major cybersecurity breach in the US to the tune of, what, 4 million federal employees affected? Uh, including military sites, etc., etc., uh, with the U.S. government obliquely blaming China. I, the Bilderberg meeting will follow, and this is top of the agenda, very important. Now we have a reason for discussing what we were going to talk about anyway. Uh, the the second one at the top of the list is artificial intelligence, which is. Uh, Ah. Which is what the Bilderbergs are using to have their meeting. <laughs> Effectively. Because they're, they're all basically robots. Uh, yeah, they're all mighty. With, yeah. <laughs> some I mean, of them are that kind of they have something, uh, Some technology inside them uh, making them take over. Or you could just say that artificial isn't, uh, their intelligence isn't real, it's artificial. Because they're all dead psychos. Also on the agenda, the surprise, Greece, Iran... Middle East, Russia, and the U.S. elections. Well, that's natural. It's the U.S. election year. The thing is, though, this is also I mean, this is the kind of thing that would be on the agenda at all the other meetings in Brussels and Germany. 
in Washington, blah, blah. But these the discussions held in these meetings you won't hear about because you're, you're not in it. It's, it's the big club and you're not, as George Collins said. Uh, so what? Well, if you look back, they have tended to uh, discuss certain topics that, lo and behold, became important. And or they've invited certain people to these meetings who, lo and behold, got into power. Well, it's just, became uh, key figures later. Yeah. I mean, they're keeping abreast of the topics of, of what's going on. Someone there uh, has many people there have connections with uh, governments and intel agencies and stuff. And they're, uh, they're setting the agenda or they're helping to set the agenda and to put these people on to uh, certain things that they want them to push forward, of course, uh, spying on people and, 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 uh, um, you know, government buying, government surveillance of the population is a major uh, agenda of the of the secret government, the shadow government um, that we'll talk about later on, maybe. Um, but they set the agenda for these kind of conferences in that way and get these people talking about these particular things. Not all of them, some of these things that are the most important. And one of them, obviously, like I just said, is... Um, surveillance of population. I mean, the Times, Sunday Times has other story uh, from today um, and the Sunday Times, the the title of which is um, <clears throat> British Spies Betrayed to Russians and Chinese. And this is back to, this is kind of like an Edward Snowden bashing story where uh, Snowden, uh, you know, Snowden took off uh, from, as a contractor for the NSA with a bunch of uh, files on um what the NSA does in terms of spying on the entire world. And a lot of, a lot of stuff has come out about that in recent years. But um, this, is the latest, this is the latest kind of hit piece in the media about uh, the implications or the effects or the results of Snowden giving this information uh, effectively to the Russians and the Chinese. Edward Snowden is in Russia right now, uh, living in Russia, because if he went back to America, he'd be sent to Guantanamo Bay or something. Um so the story is that this has compromised uh, the information and known documents that the Russians and Chinese now have. They have been able to crack it, and um, it has put uh, in danger uh, British and American and other European um, spies, supposedly. Um, I, I because think... their information has, you know, they may be able to. Uh, Glean or understand who uh, who these spies are, and they may be subject to assassination, etc. But this is the kind of bullshit that's coming that's coming out of the mainstream media about this, and it's it's basically trying to sway the population to accept this kind of mass surveillance of the population and to to not side or feel any sympathy or um uh, you know sympathy for Edward Snowden and basically whistleblowers who tell on the government, tell what the government is doing in terms of mass surveillance. Uh, but of course, the story is completely not a bullshit, like most other stories about the threat from uh, whistleblowers and leaked information like WikiLeaks and all that kind of stuff. Because uh, actually, Craig Murray, who's a former US diplomat, uh, pointed out five reasons why the UK, what, uh, former UK diplomat, uh, um, ambassador to Uzbekistan, um, pointed out why this is nonsense. He said, um, I suppose a Downing Street source that is quoted in this Times article who says, our, our agents are in danger, used the wrong word. 
for MI6 uh, British intelligence uh, agents. Uh, they're not actually called agents, they're called officers. Uh, and agents are the informants that they use. So the person who, this super secret source quoted by the Times uh, from Downing Street is an idiot. Uh, you know, it's, it's false because no one with, with any credentials would not know the name or not use the right terminology to describe uh, British intelligence officers, as, as it's called. That's one example of why uh, this is a bogus story. Um, the other one is the idea that, the, that they're under in danger of being killed is nonsense as well because there hasn't been a, a killing of a, a British uh, or U.S. intelligence agent uh, by Russia or China in 50 years or more. Yeah. Uh, it's nonsense. They don't go around killing each other. This is complete another bullshit. This is pure hysterical uh, yellow journalism designed to, like I said, sway the population, the British and American population, to hate whistleblowers and to love your government who is looking at everything you do. Um, he says, for example, and we've known this as well, of course, it's, it's obvious that uh, most intelligence uh, assets or members of the intelligence communities in, in the West all work out of embassies in the countries where they're posted. Uh, for example, in Russia, British intelligence officers are well known to the Russian government. They know exactly who they are because they all work out of the embassy, most of them under cover of being diplomats of some description. Um, the same is true for Russian uh, intelligence employees in the UK or in the US. They all know exactly who each other are. For example, there was an, an expulsion of Russian spies from the UK several years ago. Um, and the Russians in response expelled a bunch of British spies from the, the embassy, told them to go out from the embassy in, in Moscow. And the fact that they knew exactly where, the, who they were was that they picked a specific number of them and said, you, all of these people, out. Mm. And they, Which means they knew exactly who they were. So they, yeah, this, this the idea, idea that they're incognito <laughs> they did, they're is nonsense in movies. Exactly. This is a movie script version. Obviously, that's how, that's how most people in the UK and stuff understand uh, uh, you know, intelligence matters. It's from James Bond movies. Um, so this is, you know, there, there's several other reasons uh, why this is, is complete and utter nonsense, but uh, well, another one being that Rupert Murdoch owns the uh, owns the Times that produced this story, and uh, he's the guy who, uh, who owned the newspapers, most of the newspapers that produced, for example, the Iraq War dossier that was complete and utter lies. Every single allegation in the Iraq War dossier has been to be false, so why would you believe anything that comes out of this person's mouth or his indirectly through his newspapers today. So, like I said, um, this is an attempt to uh, convince the public that spying on you is good. Uh, like, for example, the British uh, intelligence headquarters, GHCQ, uh, in, in London, um, a couple of years ago, was, uh, was it was revealed that they had been uh, sweeping up millions of uh, screenshots from uh, Yahoo instant messenger or video chat uh, software that people people were using in the UK. So British intelligence has, and they said in, in the report that, that there was a, 
an investigation into it, the report revealed that they had hundreds of thousands of pictures, uh, intimate pictures of British citizens, just ordinary people who had been showing their credentials to uh, their friends or whoever on Yahoo chat. Uh, so, and the British, I think it was called, uh, the system was called Optic or Optic Nerve or something like that that they used to basically grab all of these screenshots. They just went in and took a screenshot every five minutes of anybody who was using Yahoo Messenger and they stored them all. Uh, so they have lots of basically booty shots or naked pictures of British citizens on uh, British uh, GHCQ or British intelligence files <laughs> and they're using them for what? Well, why would, they, why would they keep all that information? I don't know. This is the kind of people, maybe they just like to look at them, you know? Um, uh, yeah, that'll be first on my list. Per, the perverts. That's one thing, but obviously that kind of thing, I mean, that's a push towards basically having as much information about every single member of the population as they can, because these people are just, they want complete and utter control of the population. That's where their minds are, and that's what they thats what they try to do, and they're trying to use modern technology to, to give them that ability. They sit down and they say, listen, how would we possibly, how can we, how can we achieve that? How can we get access to as much information as possible about every single member of the of the public, and have it easily accessible, so that you know we're not going to go around and try and spy on everybody. We want computers or technology to do this for us, and that's what they're trying to do, uh, and that's what they're doing. That's what technology is doing for them. It's making it easy for them to to gather up and store as much personal information, including intimate pictures of as much of the population as possible, so that at any point in time, I think they decide they can just say, okay. There's a person of interest here. We want this person in this town. I uh, want them to do something for us, or we want to know something about him, just for you know whatever they, they decide they might need such a person for, and they want to have as much information about that as person as possible, including a picture of his backside, uh, because that's leverage, I suppose. We have a picture of your bum, uh, and you know we're going to send it to your granny if you don't uh, do what we ask you to do. So that's why. Well, the other thing is that there's a, there's a, another snooping act uh, uh, being tabled, tabled by the British uh, Home Secretary, Theresa May. Uh, she was trying to push it through uh, during the coalition uh, government uh, over the past couple of years, but she wasn't, wasn't able to. Now that's just the Conservatives in power. She's reintroduced that, and it's basically uh, collecting everything, all information, uh, phone calls, and all internet communications and storing them for certain like years um, from everybody. And they passed that law. Why do they want to do this? Well, they have all sorts of silly rationalizations, but it's obviously got nothing to do with what they say it's got to do with. It's got, for some other reason, these people are insane. They're driven, they're pathological, they're so paranoid that they want all, everything you say. I mean, obviously they can't go around and listen to what you say as you're walking down the street. Well, in some places they can but they can't listen to everything you say at every moment of, of every day because <clears throat> you can go somewhere where, unless they specifically target you. And they don't have the manpower to do that. So the next best thing for them is they say well, a lot of people are using the internet and they're using their telephones. We want all mobile, landline and internet usage for every single citizen in the UK. And the NSA has been doing this for years. We want all of that information oh, well. on our records for every single person. Why? Who knows? Well, I think what's clear... Is that the UK has been doing it too? Yeah. What? Well, well, the NSA has been helping you to do it. Yeah, but it's kind of like a retrospective 
they need to just getting a retrospective okay from people by letting you know that we're going to, we're going to now have it on the books. It's legit. And uh, to hell with your personal concerns. In a way, I, this might sound a bit weird, but I, I'm I'm quite happy for the British elite because after probably successfully rigging the election to give the Tories a clear mandate, the Tories are just like straight out of the box. I mean, the pathology is writ large and it's a glorious opportunity for people to see it. I'm thinking specifically of the statement made by Cameron not two days after uh, winning a majority government. Um, he says some defect that in this new age, we didn't say new age, but from now on, basically, um, obeying the law won't be enough. Just because you follow the law, the strict letter of the law, doesn't mean that his message was, doesn't mean we're not allowed to get you. In other words, he was letting people know that, you know, we're we're coming for you in the sense of uh, we want complete submission. We want you to go over and above the call of duty and any kind of uh, intransigence on your part. Any sign of not agreeing with what we do will be taken as a sign of your infidelity. Mm -hmm. It was an astonishing statement. And even people, I mean, you know, mainstream commentators were, this is this is the most bizarre thing they've ever heard an elected official say. Mm -hmm. Something that would, would have killed his career mm -hmm. in the past. But it's kind of like masks off. You know, I, we can say it, we can get away with it. We're confident that you all that you all don't care anymore, that, basically. That you don't care or that these other things, like you're describing, the kind of subconscious programming, the awareness people have that, you know, the government knows everything about me. I mean, they probably know what the, my true thoughts about them. It, it's a play on people's fears. Mm -hmm. Of course, if we keep saying, in the end... Um, They're playing on people's fears. That's, that's a good way to describe it because if you notice what's happened, um, what they've done, uh, particularly in recent years, is um, they kind of treat people, the entire world is being subjected to a kind of Pavlovian dog shock treatment that re that reduces them to a state of kind of uh, compliance and submission, you know. And it's done at an emotional, psychological level. The uh, people, ordinary people, just want a world relatively safe world. They want to feel that the world around them is safe, that the society is safe. Uh, but they've introduced, obviously, as we all know the horrible Muslim terror threat uh, a couple of decades ago, really. Um, before that, there was a Kami threat and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, they they traumatize people and they introduce this fear that is equivalent to the kind of um, shocks that Pavlov subjected his dog to, uh, where it promises, he, he promised uh, food, I... Uh, safety and security for the population and then at the same time turned around and periodically shocked them. So people are periodically shocked with ISIS, for example, Muslim terrorists are coming to get us, keeping this fear going and the promise of the food is basically the government will protect you and save you and it, it just pushes, it, it creates a kind of threat and a terrorization of the population even though they're far removed from the actual 
experiencing it physically themselves. They still feel it and people are scared. And uh, it it basically puts people in a position where they feel that they have no control, that they can do nothing, that the, the issues here are far too big and that they simply have to submit uh, or for fear of their lives ultimately because that's the, the implied threat is that terrorism is going, going to come and, and uh, you know behead you on the street type thing. Uh, so, I mean, for me, that's when I look at it, that's what they're subjecting the people, particularly in the West, uh, peoples in Western countries, that's what they're subjecting them to and they're uh, engendering a submission and a compliance from these people to the point where they simply don't question anymore because they've been uh, terrorized effectively back and forth, you know, promise of, you know, um, of a happy life and everything continuing on as it was, but then the threat of it not happening and it all coming crashing down. And uh, and that's that's what they I mean, I don't know if they're doing it consciously or if uh, that's just the way that the world goes or the way that it plays out based on these people's psychology, which is purely to dominate. I mean, if you take people like psychopaths in positions of power who have a drive, an innate drive to dominate and control the population over which they rule, then they're going to develop these kind of strategies that achieve that end. They're going to develop those strategies naturally. Uh, they may not do it consciously, sit down specifically and say, let's do this, but they may as well because it's in them to do that. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd like to talk about the, the G7 summit in Bavaria hosted by Angie Merkel. Oh, Angie, what have you done? How does it sound? Angie, Angie, you can't say we never tried. <laughs> so the headlines were... With no loving in our souls. Yep, no loving in our no. souls. Joe's crooning. Okay. Um, uh, the news, the take-home news that people were meant to get from it was... The fact that Russia wasn't there. Okay, well, apart from that, what came out of it? So, <laughs> what they agreed on was a vague reaffirmation to commit themselves to carbon dioxide emission reductions sometime in the next few decades that will yeah, stave off global warming-related consequences sometime a hundred years from now. That was the outcome and it was celebrated, it was lauded, certainly the liberal press as an achievement. Just just think about that for a second. All the things going on in the planet moment, you know, there's so much to deal with, real things happening right now. And vaunted Western leaders get together and agree to something that is basically a lie, an illusion, certainly. And when you're thinking about the psychology of the people, do they really believe it? I mean, I think they do. I think those leaders do. I think as the puppet heads of state, they are the most brainwashed in this respect. Maybe. I mean, they have time to stop and have a summit about this issue, you know, it's it's, it's mind-boggling. So we are going to agree to do something 
that won't have any consequences except negative ones in terms of dealing with the, the world's problems right now. I just, I just can't, I can't get my head around it. Well, you know? They don't care. But, I mean, that's an example of, yeah, I mean, I tire of hearing Obama is doing this, Obama's deciding this, Cameron's deciding this or that, Merkel is going to blah, Merkel and Cameron and Obama decide nothing of any consequence. Uh, people wonder why Obama campaigned to become president on more or less everything that the Bush, more or less against everything the Bush government uh, did uh, during his, during W's two terms. But then when Obama became president, he just carried on and did it, continued the exact same foreign policy, for example, uh, as the Bush administration. Um, that is obvious and to me very clear evidence that the office of the president is of no significance really whatsoever in terms of defining or deciding foreign policy. There is clearly a kind of a deep government or a shadow government behind the office of the president that continues its trans administration and follows a policy that is uh, regardless of what what, what political party uh, is in power of the two that are the options in the U.S., uh, but so many people still think that you know Obama is going to decide, and let's petition the Obama government. The Obama government's evil, and you get all of this bullshit rhetoric amongst uh, political, commenta- political commentators in the U.S., where they're criticizing a certain administration, like the Obama administration, and calling them evil Democrats. You have a bunch of Republican talking head talking head pundits come on and say how Democrats are evil and the Obama administration is evil, when it's so obvious that it's there's no. It doesn't matter what administration is in, is in power. You have a continuous U.S. foreign policy for, well, for the last 100 years, basically, that hasn't changed in its overall general course, and even in domestic policy that hasn't changed generally in its overall domestic course. So clearly there is yeah. a group of power brokers behind the scenes, and you can talk here about the heads of, maybe not, even, maybe you can't talk about them because they're not really public figures, but when you talk about the, the director of the CIA and the director of these other, um, directors of other, uh, intel or security agencies type thing in in the U.S. It, you're getting closer to uh, the seat of real power in the U.S. But they themselves, since they're public figures, are really only uh, they may they know, certainly probably know more than Obama and the Obama administration. But they're not the the deciders either. <clears throat> uh, the people who really decide. But obviously, we would have to include uh, banking interests here as well because banking interests are the ones that finance a lot of this stuff. I mean, you talk about the Federal Reserve and who controls the Federal Reserve. Well, uh, they really are the ones who control the U.S. government. They have a lot of leverage in terms of, uh, you know, keeping the American country, America as a country, as a state afloat and financing um, all of uh, the things that America does around the world. So, uh, But also corporations, there may be heads of corporations uh, that are close to a certain inner circle as well, but don't let on. <clears throat> but generally speaking, those kind of people would keep themselves largely private, you know. Yeah. We got a, a glorious example of it this, this past week. The two contenders, main upcoming contenders for the upcoming U.S. elections, Jeb Bush, hooray, oh, my God, and Hillary Clinton. Speak- also, oh, my God, yeah. Speaking of... <laughs> Oh, there's yes. that laugh. Oh, God, that, wow. it chills me to the bone. Where's 
Where's local witch hunter? Or vampire hunter? Where's the local vampire hunter? Where's Van Helsing? We need him. Uh, yeah, Hillary today, officially, I think yesterday, announced uh, on a, at a, at a speech somewhere out in the open in the US, can't remember where it was, that she was going to run for president. I'll just give you a little listen here just for fun. Prosperity can't be just for CEOs and hedge fund managers. Democracy can't be just for billionaires and corporations. Prosperity and democracy are part of your basic bargain, too. You brought our country back. Now it's time, your time, to secure the gains and move ahead. And you know what? America can't succeed unless you succeed. That is why I am running for President of the United States. Hillary, Hillary, USA, USA. What a bunch of... That's exactly the vomit-inducing platitudes he throws out there, and people cheer at it. The future will be better tomorrow. You people are the American people, and America will be great if you are great. And And democracy, and democracy is good. And you love democracy, and we all love democracy, and we all like ice cream as well. That is why. And the CEOs are too rich. CEOs, bad people are bad, and good people are good, and you. The American people are good, and therefore you must be the American people to make the future better tomorrow for democracy. Today. Today. That is why all of those reasons, very important reasons, are why I am running for president. Yeah! Oh my God, Hillary! 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 <laughs> she should have thrown in now. We came, we saw, he died at the end there, and it should have got a bigger cheer. Um, we may hear some. Oh, God. I mean, those people, what is wrong with them? They're screaming, you know, that if she just said, you know, you all love ice cream and that's why I'm running for president, they would have cheered just as loud. That's why the world's going to help people because there are people out there like that and there's far too many of them and I'm talking about here in the majority. Yeah. Uh, they, they were hoped and changed last time around, but it'll be the same. You know, they were left changed without change by Obama, but it's going to be a rerun. Maybe not here. I mean, it could be Bush. <laughs> Bush. As in, that could be better. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, things will be, yeah, things will be much better. I, I'd like to get back to something. Something happened this week. So this is regarding American foreign policy. Bush was in Germany for uh, that various things. One of them was the German uh, ruling government their party's conference, which is very unusual. I mean, a contender in the U.S. speaking anyway. So he gives a speech about, uh, what was his speech about? Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he was stressing the importance that everybody, you know, in Europe gets behind the transatlantic trade zone deal, which would basically merge U.S. and the EU, or at least the first step in that in that direction. Hillary gave a speech, probably not this one, 
but she gave some other speech in which she said that the three traditional threats to the United States are two from George Bush W's axis of evil, mm-hmm. Iran and North Korea, and now instead of Iraq, Russia. Mm-hmm. Point I'm getting at is Hillary gave the speech that the right wingers normally give, axis of evil, George Bush's whole shtick back in 2001. And Jeb Bush gave the opposite. He gave the World Democracy Project of the neoliberals in the U.S. Well, he, Jeb Bush also said that Putin was evil and he's a bully. He also he's threw a bully it, yeah, and we have yeah. to, He threw it all in. We have to say that. But he was advocating on behalf of a plan which is nominally Obama's idea, the TPP. Yeah, well, that's another example of the fact that there, there's no, nothing to choose between Democratic and Republican parties in the U.S. It's an absolute joke. It's beyond a joke at this point. It's not like we're saying something new here that's been the... That's been the case for decades. So the fact that we actually have to say it here is a joke, actually. It's so, I mean, it's the same in the UK. Look at Tony, Tony Blair uh, in 1987, came to, came to power in um, 1987. And within six years, he was launching a very conservative uh, imperial war of aggression into Iraq. And this is uh, as the prime minister of the Socialist Party, effectively, in, in the UK. So the same thing happened there. You know, they, they just dropped the facade towards the end of the 90s that are really egregiously in the Western world, they dropped the facade of any kind of uh, division or different ideologies between political parties and made it clear that they are all just a bunch of psychopaths who are in it for their own wealth and control and greed and domination of as much as possible on the planet. Um, yeah, so Hillary, you know, Hillary's pointing out that Russia is... Um, Russia, a, Russia, a traditional and, threat. Are Russia and Iran are the traditional threats. Yes, we're it's back. Always been well, we're threat. back to Cold War, right? Yeah, it's the new Cold War. Um, uh, but you know, I don't know. We, we've said this before in previous shows. Uh, this is an ongoing thing. Hillary's right. They are traditional threats to America. Uh, Russia is Russia, and Iran in that part of the Middle East uh, is a traditional threat. But uh, Russia, in particular, has been a threat for a long time, going back to the, the days of. Uh, of communism, and um, I mean, we've talked previous about, previously about the the origins of communism. You know, um, I think it goes back <clears throat> further. <clears throat> well, it probably goes back to well, but when you go back before the 20th century or back into European wars and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, at that at that point, something was decided, or previous to that, there was you know, ideology was developed that uh, where it was the kind of US slash UK and Britain power against the Russian Empire. I mean, you know, Russia has always been, well, for a long time, for hundreds of years, has been the size it is today. And maybe was always seen as a potential threat to uh, the British. I mean, the British go back to the 1600s in terms of their empire building and their designs and global domination. So, yeah, from the very beginning, when this little uh, island full of of Brits decided they were going to rule the world, while Russia was always going to be a threat um, because of its size and resources, you know. But the Bolshevik Revolution, we talked about this before, I mean, there's, you know, there's reasonable evidence and it's true to form, essentially, in terms of how we have understood the way these power brokers work. The Bolshevik Revolution was financed by Wall Street. A lot of people disagree with that, but uh, the evidence is there for that being the case. Lenin was shunted in to effectively 
overtake and subvert uh, a kind of a popular uprising, I suppose, that would have gone somewhere um, and to push it in a specific direction. I mean, one of the things that I mean, people talk about communism and, uh, and they got disillusioned with communism, people from the West who went to Russia, the Union during the Cold War when were disillusioned with their ideas of communism. They don't understand. There was never any communism in Russia or any of the Soviet uh, Soviet republics. That, it was it was basically a totalitarian regi- regime. When Lenin went into Russia, his main, not, not just his main goal, but what he actually did, the first thing that Lenin did after the Bolshevik Revolution was to begin to dismantle the Soviet councils. The very fundamental, the very fundamental, the very basis of uh, communism, which was these organized Soviets, as they're called, or so- Soviet councils of ordinary people in, in the area, gaining control, taking control over the means of production, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera, all the days of communism. Lenin went in and dissolved those. If you look at the actual documents about what he did, he went and basically destroyed communism as soon as he got to Russia. And it became from not long thereafter, uh, more or less a totalitarian, to one extent or another, a totalitarian uh, government. It's a totalitarian state. And uh, so, I mean, I just, you know, the whole idea that there was a competing ideology. And the fact is, they, so so this factor of communism, or what was created and called communism in Soviet Russia, was created by Wall Street, by the by America, by bankers, by American politicians. You know, uh, so they create these deals in other countries, in other parts of the world, these, these uh, uh, kind of ideologies or dictatorships that they can use to point the finger at so that people uh, back home tend not to look at their own government or what it's doing. It's pretty smart, like, you know, I mean, but it's the old creation of a boogeyman, so you can fight against that boogeyman, scale population, start wars in its name, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I think that that's, that's a, a benefit that, that comes along later. In their ideal vision of the world, right-thinking people like us, like the psychopaths in power in the West, would be in place everywhere. They would like it to be a one-world community in actuality where there's a regime in Russia that's quote-unquote right-thinking, mm-hmm. at which point it wouldn't be an enemy. It would be doing the right thing. Right, but they will push for global domination. That has been their plan all along. Uh, even sure. if Russia, even if in, 19, in the 1990s, if they had been able to uh, take complete control of Russia through in, in the way that they attempted to do by gaining control of Russian industry through the, through the Russian oligarchs that were Western-aligned, if Putin hadn't come along and Russia had been turned into a, basically a compliant, subservient, kind of probably impoverished uh, country uh, under Western control, they would still today be pushing with this uh, global global domination. They would still be pushing with the war on terror. They'd still be spreading their bases around the world and they would still be fighting Islamic terrorism because they want everybody under one umbrella, basically. It's, that's what they want. They, they don't like nation states that have like, uh, you know, uh, sovereignty or anybody to be able to. I mean, the European Union was an attempt or, or came out of a plan to effectively create a single United States of Europe and America that was promoted several times during the second half of the 20th century by American politicians to have this kind of Atlantic Union of Europe and America because they didn't like the idea of any country anywhere in the world 
and particularly in, in you know wealthy countries, let's say, or countries that are of strategic importance, or whatever, to have any kind of independence whatsoever. And the European Union came out of that. You know, we're basically have nominal independence, but for a long time, everybody in, in well, in most countries in the world are under the influence of a kind of higher power, and they've been increasing that over the years more and more uh, to the point we are to, where we are today. You know, um. I mean, I don't know, you could go on about it, like Af- Afghanistan. What was the point of Afghanistan? 9-11 justified Afghanistan and Iraq. 9-11, uh, well, the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq, as is officially known now, was planned prior to the 9-11 attacks. The 9-11 attacks were used to justify it. Afghanistan was for the sole purpose of creating a permanent U.S. military base the point of that was to establish uh, one one part of it, other than the overarching plan to control as much of the world as possible, was as a beachhead against uh, Russia. Because look where Afghanistan is, it's on Russia's border. The same thing was, um, the same thing, Iraq was more or less the same, the same plan, you know. So, um, It's Stevens. Virgin 
Folks, I hope you enjoyed the uh, interlude. Like I said, we uh, we probably have some technical difficulties this evening, but uh, we got a fix now. So, um, yeah, what were we saying? Apparently, Neil got cut off uh, sentence. Uh, you were saying something really important, there, Neil. So. <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it very much. Yeah. Uh, don't be selling yourself short now. It was groundbreaking. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, it's this idea. I mean, the idea that there's a effectively a multi-generational, if certainly multi-decade strategy going on from the biggest picture that is to do with containing Russia. 
Yeah, we keep saying that on these shows. Yeah. We, we come back to that point again and again. And just for people who missed it, what well, I think what we're saying before we get cut off was that uh, if you take a look at 9-11, uh, 9-11 was used to justify the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, Afghanistan and, and Iraq were both for the purpose of establishing a permanent military presence, a permanent U.S. military presence in, in Afghanistan, for example, which is on Russia's border. Um, and that was planned. It's, it's known, it's officially known that both of those invasions were planned before 9-11. It was put at the time where Putin just came to power, or just before or before Putin came to power, and you could even throw it back uh, at the beginning of the, uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union. So back then, I would suggest someone in power in the US, in the, this, this high ball type thing of idiots, um, decided that, uh, okay, we've contained Russia all through the, the Cold War with the bogus uh, communist uh, threat. Uh, it's on out. We need a new one. Let's get get going on the Muslim terror threat, and we'll plant that right in the middle of the uh, Middle East, and we'll send troops over into Iraq, permanent military base into Afghanistan, permanent military base. Uh, because here is that we need to contain Russia. Back in 1990, we need to contain Russia. And we need to do something about it now because yeah. we, we don't know where to go, and Russia is the threat. Has always been. Uh, 1990 is 90 years since Russia was a threat, effectively, since it began to be, let's say, uh, a major threat, and the Western powers took action in, in at the beginning of the of the of the 20th century to undo the Tsarist regime, destroy the Tsarist regime, regime, institute the, the the Bolshevik Revolution, send over Lenin, have him destroy communism, effectively, and uh, and institute. Uh, him and Stalin after, after him to, to institute basically a dictatorship that was largely controlled by Western finance in Russia to contain Russia for all of those years until 1990. And then Muslim terror threat takes over and it just allows the U.S. to expand itself, the U.S. and its partners, its minions, to spread themselves around the world. And, of course, on the one level, Russia is a threat. That's that's a real threat. But then they create a bogus reason, a bogus uh, Justification for containing Russia. They don't tell anybody about containing Russia necessarily, but create a, a, a bogus uh, threat that they have to fight against to to contain Russia. But over and above that is the the general idea, the general goal of dominating and controlling as much of the world as possible. And, and like you were saying at the beginning of the show, you see this in their drive for total information awareness or full spectrum dominance in the information field. Where they're basically spying on everybody and and, and scooping up, you know, uh, pictures of people's backsides. <laughs> pictures of people's backsides, it, and it it is total. It's total. We were talking uh, recently about uh, the control of media, specifically radio coverage. Uh, the example uh, was in the U.S. How it, it could be a local radio station from a town. I'll say a bunch of them for a city. And there was a, a period of about 10 years there in the 90s coming into and then 9-11 where they were just bought up. And if, you, if you were paying attention, as some were, you'd have noticed it just went from a variety. It went from a show where people could get on and say something actually that meant something truthful or was truthful, period, to this 100% canned um, thou shalt not say anything about this, 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 and this, and this prescribed areas, in other words. Mm-hmm. The, the, the total information is, is coming down from the top, and then the total control of what's said down below, the masses, 
they want to see all of that right from the top. Not only it's they're not content with the control that they have, and they are exerting massive control, like you just said, over control control of the media, um, and, and thereby control of what people think, and control of the dominant discourse where everything is scripted. Even you know discussion shows or political discussion shows and stuff where you have an audience and you have different politicians and you have different speakers and they'll allow in the audience left and stuff, but they generally control what the conclusion is. They're not even content with that, even though it's a, it's a real overarching, uh, pervasive control of, of what people are thinking. They want still to know what each individual is thinking because they're afraid that they'll miss someone or miss a group of people. They want to know if there's any dissenters. And the reason why, so this is obviously, this is, it's not hard to see why the hell, the world is going to hell when we present it in this way and we're presenting it in this way because that's the facts in front of you, in front of everybody. That point to that is the, that that being, that is, that is the state of play. That is what's happening on the planet right now and has been for a long time. But the question is, in, okay, that's why the world's going to hell, but there's another reason. Uh, it takes two to tango, right? It takes your, overarching totalitarian control system and your population who go along with it. Of course, you mentioned earlier on that people have been kind of bludgeoned to a certain extent psychologically and emotionally into submission with all these terror threats and terror alert levels, etc. that have been going on since 9-11 and before it. Um, and that's done a lot. But still, how do you explain uh, what we just heard uh, from Hillary Clinton and her adoring fans. Those people aren't, they're not, they don't sound like people who have been beaten into submission or, and are just quietly compliant. They're enthusiastically compliant. They're enthusiastically in favor of the kind of BS that she that she spouts. You know, they're not thinking at all, obviously. So, I mean, this gets into the problem of, of human beings and human beings are a problem. Yeah. Crowd psychology. I, I think. Well, the nature of human beings. Yeah. The fundamental nature of human beings is a problem, and it's always has always been a problem on this planet. You know, um, here we're talking about um, authoritarian followers, effectively, and what an authoritarian follower is, and what drives them, and the fact that probably more than fifty percent. You know, exactly how much more, let's say, but uh, certainly more than fifty percent of the population, the global population, are the type of person. And it's quite a fundamental type, if you know what I mean. Um, because I'm sure many people listening to this uh, have been shocked many, many times by uh, their own uh, seeing the difference, the contrast between their own attitude to what's going on in the world or political corruption or political abuse or wrongdoing and what you might have heard from one of your peers or family members or, or whatever that you are outraged by it and they tend not to be so much or certainly if you go too far in trying to present solutions to the problem they will certain a lot of people will balk at uh, or back away from going too far in terms of well you can't take down the whole system. what do you mean <clears throat> revolution you know the idea that people will be terrified of revolution or getting rid of the system as one person said to me when i was talking to them one time about the, the catholic church and the whole child abuse in the catholic church uh, I was saying, well, the whole thing, it's obviously corrupt to the core and it needs to go. And this person said to me, yeah, but uh, you can't just take things down like that. I mean, that's a that's a structure, that's a power, uh, it's an edifice, it's an authority, uh, 
and and what do you put in this place? And when they said it, there was a kind of a a tremor in their voice at the very thought of removing yeah, the sound of crickets in the background, like. Well, well, when, no, when they when they were vacuum. saying when they were saying, what do you put in its place? There was a desperation in their voice and uh-huh. in the sense of uh, you have to have something. I mean, you can't just get rid of uh, an authority, authority figure, or a, a structure of authority without replacing it. So this is what we're getting at here, which is that some people seem to have at a very, very basic uh, level, i.e., in their nature, that they're not even conscious of is a desire to a need for an authority in their lives of course God the idea of God serves that purpose for them but God is a bit problematic in the sense that yeah it's an idea and all that kind of stuff but I can't really shake God's hand I can't like talk to him I don't don't see him on TV he doesn't say nice things to me directly and stuff even if, he, if, even if he does to George Bush, he doesn't say nice things directly to the average believer and stuff. And um, so that's why you have uh, a, a physical, uh, earthly authority is very welcome and, and equally needed by yeah. these people who need to intercede on God's behalf. Right. That's why you have the physical edifice of the church, for example, God's representatives on the planet. And for all those people who aren't really into religion, for whom it's a little too uh, ephemeral, you have government. Um, and government serves that function on authority in people's lives for these kind of people who lack a sense of their own inner authority. Uh, of course, they they will tell you that they can be authoritative and, and they're their own man or woman and they do this, but ultimately at an emotional level, they don't have a sense of real authority and they're scared by the immensity of life and the world and most importantly, death. The fear of death motivates these people motivates a lot of people, but motivates these people quite strongly in the sense that uh, an authority in their lives is akin to a hero, someone better than them, someone who embodies qualities that are that they don't have, and they feel that essentially they can uh, deny death or thwart death by attaching themselves to an authority figure in their lives, in the world. Uh, that embodies these characteristics <clears throat> that are somewhat, could be seen to be kind of immortal or god-like type things or very strong people. Basically, mm. compared to the average person in the street, this authority figure is way beyond me and could be God. They may they hold the promise of, if I attach myself to them, they hold the promise of me um, living on after I die. Mm. And here we get into a kind of a, <clears throat> a spiritual aspect, a spiritual theory is that for some people, not everybody's born equal. Some people have souls or have the potential for souls. Other people do not. And so that for some people, when they die, as an atheist would say, there really is nothing. And that's quite terrifying for the personality. <clears throat> um, and that's why, that's for me anyway, that, that, that theory um, it seems to apply very yeah, well to what's going on on the planet and yeah. with a lot of people in that they can uh, assuage or uh, mollify or, or calm this, this fear they have that may even be true in terms of non-existence after death uh, by attaching themselves to an authority, by having an authority in their lives that they can hold on to the shirt, the, the coattails of and thereby... Um, you know, thereby deny death, deny death, <clears throat> defeat yeah. death. Or, but, in, but in a the sense, irony is, they won't be. Uh, 
Well, well, we don't know there's any certainty, but of course, it uh, you only you only take with you your consciousness. If if you haven't actually developed one while you're here, right, you're going to actually bring about the very thing, right, exactly that you're most terrified exactly. of not ever getting. And that's why a good leader. That's why there's something sound in this impulse that a lot of people have to look to an authority, someone bigger, better, smarter, greater than them. Because in terms of normal human development or the way human development should happen, say like take people who are just more or less don't have individuated souls, let's say, but are just in the process of through many lifetimes getting that. Well, if they can, while they live their lives, if there can be a figure in their life like uh, some of the great leaders and there's very few of them that have existed, that kind of a, a leader on the planet um, would teach those people the right things, the things that they need to be taught. Would, he or she would tell them how to live their lives by example and by being the leader uh, that would actually contribute to their spiritual development. If you have the opposite, obviously you're in trouble. If you have a bunch of psychopaths, mimic to some extent the qualities of a great leader, but in fact uh, have no spiritual aspect to them whatsoever, and in fact behind the mask have only destruction and death, then they will retard that normal human evolution of, of, of people who who um, who want to evolve, essentially, who, who the, whose purpose it, it is to evolve on this planet through example from a leader. So there's nothing wrong with it. It's very natural for human beings to look to a higher authority. The problem is, is when that higher authority that should be good has been supplanted by evil. Uh, now, there's maybe a smaller percentage of the population who maybe do have some sense of their own authority. And I mean, this each person can maybe answer this for themselves. I don't know. It won't be a definitive answer. But people who have that sense of their own authority and who can, who are happy, one of the indicators of, not the, not the only indi- indicator, and it's not completely reliable, but generally speaking, people who would be happy to flip the bird at authority and say, screw you, get rid of it, you're evil. I don't, you know, basically I don't need you or anybody, anybody else in authority and that kind of authority to be ruling over me and to fight against to to people who would draw a clear line between um, <clears throat> or who would side very definitely with uh, uh, fighting against injustice and evil and corruption uh, and those who would excuse those kind of issues in favor of keeping the authority. The, those two kinds of people who, who will say, listen, I don't care about authority if they're going to be corrupt. And other people will say, well... I don't care who the authority is. If they're corrupt, I'm against them. I don't care if they're corrupt. Well, no, <laughs> yeah, the opposite. I, yeah, I, the opposite. Yeah. Uh, I don't care how corrupt they are. Uh, I need an authority in my life and I will forgive that authority uh, any corruption effectively as long as they remain the authority so those two kinds of people are maybe indicative of in a general sense types of people are not maybe two human beings that are at different stages of development yes but different stages of spiritual development yeah and and just just to be clear intellect has very little to do with it the how many times have we read analysis by, um, you know, uh, apparently sound? I mean, there are people in the U.S. There are tanks in think tanks of some description, or they're affiliated, who who write articles about what's going on and have a fairly good grasp of the reality 
that there are limits to U.S. power and that there are other rising powers and that they're doing things that will someday, sooner or later, supplant or replace or balance out uh, the U.S. drive to have control of everything. And yet these same people say simultaneously that the, they basically admitted that the thought of the U.S. not being the world policeman absolutely terrifies them because in the absence of the U.S. as the global policeman, they see this barren landscape of anarchy and chaos and, and death and destruction, which is actually what we have, thanks to the U.S. being the global policeman. But they think that that will come about in the absence of it. It's a classic Hobbesian, and Thomas Hobbes was a British political thinker way back 400 years ago, who came up with this idea of justification, the, the philosophical justification for having a Leviathan state. Mm. Because without it, it's just man against man. It's a brutal jungle. Yep. They'll all just slaughter each other to death, and the human race will be extinct. And they really, really believe that. So this is something that cuts across all types of people. It's a fundamental division. Yeah. They see the world. And what's interesting is producing a situation today where there's a kind of a bifurcation where America represents materialism and it seems to be drawing people who are naturally inclined to it. Uh, authoritarian follows being probably one subset of that towards them. And there's a counter a balance, at least it appears to be a balance on offer, that no matter where you're from, you can see through, if you're sick of enough of, of the lies that come out from the West, you can see through it, you can see that there's at least, not I don't say this, this one, there's some hope for change uh, coming from Russia's ideas, in particular also China, but at least that there's uh, a, a, a memory or an embodiment out there still of at least halfway decent leadership that stands in stark contrast to the utterly depraved way in which society is organized in the West. So it's, uh, yeah, we've, we've gone way deep here, but uh, this is beyond ideology, even beyond geopolitics to probably as fundamental as you can get. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Well, that is. I mean, getting close to the the, the basics. It's a discussion of uh, of human uh, of human nature and why the world is the way it, the way it is. That's obviously not a complete discussion of any means. Um, but uh, that's. I think maybe that's getting getting close to 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 a basic synopsis of it because there is clearly uh, a problem, and it's a problem that. Many people have tried to explain, and no one wants, no one seems able to explain it um, in terms of why there is this difference between human beings, and it's a very fundamental difference in terms of their ability to see um, injustice and to take a stand against injustice. And other people who, well, okay, they can see injustice, they can understand it intellectually, but emotionally, when it comes down to it, they will not sacrifice their authority uh, if it, if uh, they will not. Uh, fight against that injustice if it means giving up their authority. Uh, I think that that's a fundamental division. It seems to be a fundamental division because, uh, and it's a problem in, in this world today, like all those people um, cheering and screaming about mm -hmm. uh, yeah. uh, Hillary. Maybe they know a lot about Hillary, 
um, in terms of the kind of psychopathic witch that she is and what she's done, that she's a liar and a war criminal effectively. Um, but even if they did, studies have shown that people who are invested in that person as their personal authority, even if they're shown information, they will, bizarrely, they will either simply uh, you know, filter it so that it doesn't look so bad, or afterwards they will believe even more strongly what they already believed. It's hard to imagine that, but when you tell someone, they've done studies in this in terms of political parties and, and allegiances that people have, when people are shown information that they should logically that should logically make them not think so highly of their their hero, their authority, they will actually think more highly of them. It has the exact opposite effect of what logically should have. So don't go around telling people who loved Hillary Clinton or some other psycho that giving them don't go around giving them evidence that they're evil because they'll actually love them even more. <laughs> just just observe them and take notes. <laughs> Well, yeah. um, and, and stay clear. <laughs> uh, we have uh, Kent on the line here. Um, we kept him waiting for a little while. Hi, Kent. How you doing? Uh, yeah, earlier on, uh, you touched upon the um, your kind of dismay at the uh, wild, enthusiastic uh, reception Hillary got, and then somewhere beyond that, you touched on the you know the, the thing the thing about the structure of the Catholic Church. And um, what I was wondering when you mentioned Hillary was I have I lived in Ireland for about five years and came back several decades ago, just before um, um, Bill Clinton made I guess the heroes or maybe even the triumphant visit to Dublin. And I remember corresponding with somebody over there, and he said that they had passed out little American flags for everybody to wave, you know, like they do. And I was just curious what you thought. Now, setting aside, obviously, that he brought in the uh, the Good Friday Agreement, brought peace, you know, such as it is, but whether that little visit of Bill Clinton actually had a, uh, a beneficial effect on Ireland, whether it's gone through all these economic turmoils, and, or whether you think it's been detrimental. Uh. Yeah, I think my my mother actually went to see Bill Clinton in Belfast, uh, and she told me about it um, when he was there. Uh, that's a long time ago. And uh, <laughs> um, the last U.S. president, the only U.S. president that ever came to Ireland that uh, should ever should ever have um, been given a warm reception was uh, John F. Kennedy. You know, uh, no, Bill Clinton didn't really do anything. I mean, nothing that wouldn't have wouldn't have happened anyway. I think, uh, I mean, he's, he's gone down in history as, as playing this major role in the peace process, but, I mean, really, I don't think it had much to do with Bill Clinton. Um, he, he may have, uh, it may have, I don't think, I, I'm thinking it, it may, he may have put some pressure on, not necessarily pressure, but for his own vested interests and the interests of the U.S. government may have uh, talked to the British government at the time to, you know, push it in a certain direction, but, uh, well, in the context of the discussion we just had, he was the here was Uncle Sam, big father, big brother, coming and blessing, giving his blessing to what was going on. And that, that would have reinforced; it would have played into uh, your mum's yeah. notions of oh, good, good, good. Okay, this has the blessing from on high. So, absolutely, that would have reinforced the, the programming, and it would also have um, blessed the, the British. Because, I mean, half the population wouldn't be naturally inclined to, at the very least, not trust the British interest in a, quote-unquote, peaceful resolution. 
So when President of the United States comes along, oh, okay, right, yeah, yeah. But I mean, that that's basically uh, shoving someone out there for an attaboy. In terms of in terms of Bill Clinton having any, I mean, his presence there didn't do much for the peace process in the sense of it didn't. It oh no, he was there for the hotel. It, it was, yeah, it wasn't yeah, the, uh, no. it wasn't the the linchpin that that swung it in one way or another. But um, I don't know what was going on behind the scenes. But I think those things were going on behind the scenes were would have gone on anyway whether Bill Clinton had uh, had arrived or not. So the question of whether some U.S. president simply coming along and saying I support peace and then pissing off again uh, has any lasting effect or had any lasting effect on the peace process in Northern Ireland or such as it's called, uh, I don't think that's true, no. It's not, you know, it's, did, did Joe Biden, or did, what do you call him, um, Joe Biden being shoved out on stage in Ukraine, you know, uh, change the course of, uh, did it help the, the coup in Ukraine? Maybe a little bit, but it was going to happen anyway. So that's what we think, Kent. I I, I, I kind of had trepidations about uh, a certain attitude about American. Of course, uh, once, once, of course, after he came and went on to what he brought with him or whatever, the changes came about after that, you know, with the Celtic Tiger and then, of course, the collapse, which seems, uh, well, it seems to be everybody, every place where they go and they visit these, with these democracies and this capitalism, there's a big boom, and then there's a collapse. That whether people are worse off or better off uh, than before, who knows? But uh, as you were talking about visitation, it was quite comical. Um, there was I, I get a little um, television program from um, RTE, and uh, Obama went to Ireland, some some little village in Kerry um, or someplace, and yeah. uh, somewhere in his family tree, he's got somebody uh, who is uh, Irish, you know. He's about one, you know, as every most every American does, and it was kind of comical to see the, the the rapturous welcome that was given to him, you know. And I was thought, well, there's just no, you know, there's just a, a need for any 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 president who has a little drop of Irish blood. Right. It's just kind of cool. I thought, I don't know where you guys saw that or not. So. Yeah, it was funny as well. But there, you know, there's been a long line of Irish or American presidents that have popped up in Ireland and dr- drunk a pint of Guinness and claim their kiss the brownie stone and claim their Irish roots you know it's just it's all just showmanship you know yeah well I, I was in actually I was in the Tralee and uh, in a pub where I guess uh, Ronald Reagan visited and it was it was a bit of a joke about the town that uh, he only first of all he only drank a glass you know that's you know nobody in Ireland just a man doesn't drink a glass you know but that they took the uh, the keg so he drank Smithics, which is another, mm. you know. Uh, and he took the keg back to the United States and analyzed it and brought it back so that, you know, they didn't poison him. So that's the way. Yeah. Well, I believe All it. Right, well, I'll, yeah. All right, I'll talk to you later. Thanks. All right, Ken. Thanks. For it. Yeah, I mean, I keep coming back to it, and it's something that uh, I don't keep coming back to. I keep coming back to it in my own head, and it's this abiding problem of... Well, I call it a problem because of the the power structure plan today. But this fact of human nature, where people will get out in in the street, sometimes in their millions, and all cheer at one person, and will, I mean, that amount of political capital, <clears throat> as it's called, uh, you know that that 
amount of from like I mean when the Pope came to Ireland talking about Ireland the Pope came to Ireland in 1981 or something like that there was just over a million people in the in the park in Dublin who went to see him a million people that was uh, more than a quarter of the population of the country at the time and they all came to wave and cheer and would have done anything for him. I mean you can see how that kind of power can be can be uh, uh, yeah, abu- e- well abused, easily wielded, yeah, abused. But the more fundamental question is why. You know that fundamental question of why, and we've already discussed it, is at the core of, of the problems of of human life on human not life on planet Earth, human life on planet Earth. That that there is that power that can be wielded by one other human being over millions. At, and not wielded in a in an oppressive way, but with the active and willing compliance of the population that they will give themselves up to one person. I mean, how 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 could you expect this plant not to go wrong when you have the, those conditions? And especially when you introduce the idea of psychopaths, well, you know, an ambitious psychopaths that people effectively masquerades or um, you know. A kind of a mockery or a, a some a type of human being made in the image of the archetypal hero who embodies the superficial traits, but behind it is a monster. You put that in, and you've just you've screwed the whole thing up. That's it. It's over. Yeah, this place is going down the tubes. Well, from here on in. It, I mean, <laughs> if you put that in, it's almost like you put it in in order to to do that. Down. Yeah. Somebody waited to stack the deck massively on this planet with that set of circumstances. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Talking about evil psychos and stuff, Greece is still on the the agenda, obviously. Greece is going to bring down the EU, blah, blah, blah. No, it's not, probably. But um, they're still negotiating a deal, trying to negotiate a deal with the IMF. Bad idea. Try the devil instead. <clears throat> He's a bit nicer, um, and who knows where it's going to go? They're still they're just keeping it, you know, keeping it bubbling over, boiling over, or, or simmering along in the press to keep people uh, people in Europe wondering, you know, what's going to happen? A Grexit, a Greek exit from the euro, and we're all going to fall off the cliff, blah blah blah. But um, I'm happy to see. I mean, the, so far the Syriza party. That, that came to power. It's a, what used to be a very left-wing party. Um, it's become a little bit more populist, but it's still, they're still holding to their ideals and they're putting up a good fight. Um, they still seem to be, at least on the face of it, uh, standing nose-to-nose or face-to-face with the MF and not budging, not blinking. Um, it's interesting, the kind of history of Greece. You know, Greece has, has, Greece has had a hard time, uh, as hard a time as as any almost uh, particularly European nation over the past, you know, 70 or 80 years. Um, I mean, they had a terrible time under the Nazis. And uh, they had a brief moment. They had a brief moment of, of respite when they kicked the Nazis out by themselves. Well, officially the British freed them from the Nazis. No, 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 no. They came in, the British came in and put the Nazis back in power. Well, it's more or less, they 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 put uh, the the Greek resistance effectively, who who fought the best fight against the against the Nazis. Um, they wanted uh, after the Nazis had left, 
uh, but the war was still ongoing. They wanted uh, basically a, a government for the people, by the people type thing. But the British, who were given the uh, kind of mandate effectively, who, who were uh, who had come in to occupy Greece after, you know, and as they say now, kick the kick the Nazis out. Um, under and Churchill, obviously at the time, decided that this wasn't a good idea. He wanted the monarchy, the royal, back in, and the Greek resistance, Greek, Greek resistance, Elas, basically fought a what they call a civil war, but it was effectively a war against uh, a British-imposed dictatorship uh, because they didn't want power to the people. They wanted the old regime back in, and the British. They, they didn't want an independent <clears throat> Greece because it would have affected their control of the Eastern Mediterranean, right. the British Empire. Right. Well, that's why they took Greece. And that's why the British got Greece, effectively, or the West got Greece when they were divvying up uh, Europe with Stalin. And that was to keep, you know, keep the Russians at bay type thing out of the Mediterranean. Um, But the British, basically, they were during the war, there were Greek policemen who had basically joined the SS. And the British... uh, when when the Nazis were kicked out, those guys were should have been on, and were for a period of time uh, put in prison or fo- fell out of favour. who were shunned by the community, uh, by, by, by local Greeks. But then the British came in and reinstated them as policemen. So what Greek the Greek resistance and the supporters of the Greek resistance and ordinary Greek people uh, saw was that the people who had been persecuting them, the Greek uh, turncoats essentially, collaborators who had persecuted them with the Nazis during the Nazi occupation, under the British were now back in police police uniform and suppressing uh, the will of the Greek people and the Greek resistance to, to rule their own country. And uh, there was a civil war that lasted a month or more and um, until the British, and this was under, I mean, this was, uh, uh, what was his name, General Scobie uh, was the, the occupying British general there at the time. Um <laughs> There's some funny... Uh, anyway, uh, and he he basically presided over a, a, a fascist police force that put down that shot. Uh, the British actually, in, in one day um, in 1944, uh, when there was a protest against British rule, when they saw what the British were doing, they, um, uh, you know, the resistance continued on and attempted to, uh, basically, they wanted to kick the British out and establish their own government. And uh, they the British set up snipers on the roofs of hotels and basically started firing into the crowd crowd during this protest and killed 28 people uh, and that was immediately after the Nazis so they were they I mean not and as people at the time said not even the Nazis put snipers on the roofs and shot into shot it on on uh, well, during during their Nazi occupation that's because the Nazis were amateurs at this well exactly yeah you don't show your totalitarian face you have to hide it that's well, why they use democracy blah 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 yeah, exactly. And so this is what the British did immediately, not before the Second World War had even ended. This is what they did in Greece. This is what they did to democracy in Greece, the burgeoning democracy that was demanded by the people in Greece. They put it down with well, slaughter, basically, of innocent people and then and then put them and set up concentration camps and put all of the uh, former resistance uh, members who had been fighting with the British effectively against the Nazis and had been part of the, the Allied forces. They put them all in concentration camps in North tor- Africa and tortured them. And um, and then and in Greece, set up concentration camps in some Greece as well. Greece, yeah. And they, but yeah, there's some. There's really almost could have been, should have been moment where uh, the Greek resistance, Elas, had decided that they were going to kill this uh, this General Scobie who was overseeing the British presence in, in the hotel, the Grand Britannia Hotel in Athens, and um, 
and they had they had climbed down to the sewers and planted bombs enough to blow the whole building, the whole hotel sky high, uh, and they knew Scobie was going to be there, the British general was going to be there, and they had planted the bombs through the sewers, all that kind of stuff, and they didn't detonate the bomb at the last minute. Why? Because on the day that Scobie was there, Churchill arrived as well, and they didn't, they still had a kind of an idea that Churchill was one of the big three, you know, Stalin, because at that time, Stalin, Roosevelt, and Churchill were the guys who had all freed them and led the war effort to feed the Nazis and stuff. And I'm like, fuck, damn, really? That was the reason you didn't do it? To kill Churchill? I mean, that would have been such a coup. Then, you know, Greece would have been going down history. But the reason I'm saying all this is because the Syriza party effectively are the party, more or less, of... Uh, ideological roots go back to yeah. the Greek resistance. These are it's the first real popular pop- party in yeah. Greece. So because uh, after forty four, forty five, Britain could no longer afford the occupation. So it, <laughs> the British ambassador in Washington just called in one day on Congress and offered the role. And the, the Americans said, "Sure, we'll take Greece from your hands." And um, if you're if you're wondering, you know, well, what does that mean? It, it's more than just military and CIA connections. The the American government in 1947 was writing social security policy for Greece. That, that's the extent of uh, an occupation we're talking about. It's still in the shadows, of course, yeah. because nobody is actually aware that it's a U.S. protectorate. Well, all throughout the 50s, <clears throat> Greece once they chanted in this kind of uh, tin pot uh, royal dictator, effectively in Greece. Um, Actually, Proudy um, talks about this in, in, I think, in some of his books, and de- oh, but definitely in some of the videos that, he's, Secret that, that, team. that are on his, uh, uh, that are on the web, where he talks about how, uh, what do you call him, Lansdale and uh, various other CIA operatives in the 50s in, in Athens and Greece basically ruled the place. That they just walked around and they were making policy. They were deciding everything about that that happened in Greece. It was more than just a client state. It was they, the CIA was the government in Greece for most of the 1950s, and of course it continued on. Well, Greece was in a dictatorship until 1986, when this documentary was made. Uh, you should watch it. I don't know the name of it, but YouTube you'll find it's British and American. Something Greece World War Two. Um, it's in Greek, but no, it's it's in English. Sorry, with Greek subtitles, so it's very good. But yeah, it basically, 1986. I mean, Greece went straight from being a run by the CIA. Then it joins the European Commission uh, Community, which becomes European Union. So you see the continuity here. Greece. This isn't any recent. Sudden evolution. This, this is no, been on a the beachhead thumb. of the empire on the periphery, treated like shit. By the way, Greece. In terms, this is the classic of of, of projecting the absolute anti-truth out there. So when people think, of, especially when Germans think of Greece, oh god, we don't have to give them another a bailout. I mean, these lazy Greeks, they don't work hard enough. Statistically, the Greeks work the hardest in Europe. That's OECD and EU statistics, they work the longest hours, they're the hardest working bunch in Europe. Uh, interestingly, in North America, Mexico is. Anyway, that's another story. So, it's a 70-year affair uh, with Western control of Greece. 
somehow here we are today. Finally, Greece has somebody has uh, stood up a leadership that can actually put up a fight. Yeah, and the chances are slim, but they have a big brother of a different kind over in the east. Well, if they'll take the if they'll take the hand that's been extended to them from Russia and even China, then they would be very wise to do that. But they, I can understand how they're still trying to hedge the bets a little bit and see maybe they don't understand exactly what they're up against in, the, in terms of the IMF and the, the EU central bank and stuff. Um, and Angela Merkel, maybe they don't understand just how mendacious and evil these people are. Um, if they did, they would just drop drop the whole affair like a hot potato and turn turn east and turn turn east and north to to uh, Russia and, and China, but... Um, well, the, tr- the tricky thing is debt. Nobody doesn't pay debt. Russia even paid its debts to get into this situation. When you don't pay debt suddenly, you're number one for, you right. know, well, that's, bombing. That's foreign debt. But what they're saying now is that just recently the Greek government are pointing to Iceland and saying, you know, right. if they could do it at least for the banking. That's true. They didn't call banking, Iceland. You know, so um, they're still they're still putting up a good fight, and I hope they continue. And it reminds me of Plato's kind of uh, mention of Atlantis and his story about Atlantis and stuff. And I think it was in the story as uh, of what remains of it. It was Greece. It was Greece, Athens, that uh, Athens. that defeated the evil empire. Uh, I don't think it defeated, but it, 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 it was just some. It was instrumental in the defeat. important battle at the end and before the great fall. Right, exactly. Yeah. So it seems maybe uh, you know there's a there's a repeat there. I'm not, not that we know all the details about Atlantis and all that kind of stuff, but um, it's interesting just that he mentioned it back then and and the role that it played according to Plato and uh, and what's happening now if you put America in the place of Atlantis or the, the, that empire and and modern Greece as the Athens that. But uh, just tipped it over the, the scales, you know. This um, is bizarre. It's like it's just on repeat, mm-hmm. repeat, repeat. Anyway, um, from Greece, I consider Greece. I think I think the elites, when they look at Greece, they consider it as part of the Middle East. I mean, they don't make a, a distinct dividing line based on other considerations. Greece would have been too close to the oil for the British and the Americans to, you know, allow to just be independent. They did let Yugoslavia to the north go its own way after the war, but too close to to the moolah. So moving over to the Middle East, um, uh, 20 million people, uh, according to the UN and other human human rights organizations like Amnesty are saying the Saudis have blockaded Yemen to the point that 20 million people are without fresh water, food, basic supplies. And this is a good war. It's a good war because the authoritarians in the West support it because that's what um, their leaders support. Uh, But does anyone now wonder why billions of people from this region are crossing from North Africa into Europe. I mean, if if you don't give them any option, what are they supposed to do? Of course, they're having a hard time trying to get out of Yemen because it's under naval blockade. I think some thousands are making it across to the Horn of Africa and from there up to Libya. Um, 
situation in Syria, god awful. Nearly two million refugees now in Turkey. Turkey won't let any more in because they say they can't have they can't take any more. Um I don't know whether or not to feel sorry for Turkey in this situation because it was part of their own doing, siding with the US and Qatar and the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia. Um, Iran is sending another 15,000 of its troops, they say, into the situation. So expect that to get even worse. Not that I condemn what Iran is doing. They rarely venture abroad. And of course, the real news with Iran is that right now we've got these talks about Iran's nuclear program this non-stop story that just won't go away. What's really going on here? Well, ostensibly it's that benevolent Western leaders are concerned on Israel's behalf that should Iran get a nuclear weapon, it might use it against Israel. Of course, they don't really think that what they're concerned with is a shift of power, a rebalance in the Middle East, away from Israel and Saudi Arabia, further east to Iran and therefore further east towards Russia and China. It's about the battle for the heartland, the battle for the Eurasian landmass. Um, Joe, can you guess what country or what agents on behalf of what state might have sent malware to the venue where the P5 plus one nuclear talks are taking place in Vienna and <laughs> thereby forced the meeting to be adjourned or... Oh, it's our old favorite group of uh, ideologues what? in the Middle East. What, 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 who do they think they're fooling? What, what are they going to get out of that? I mean, that's, that's desperate. Although I'm not surprised them. they don't go to the next level. I mean... Launch a nuclear weapon? nuke Vienna or something or do something to physically stop it I mean you're not going to stop it by shutting down the venue but apparently the malware may have actually compromised secrets because yeah, the party springs exactly you're spying probably along with malware comes all sorts of other can can come all sorts of other interesting things but um, yeah Iran you know BB's been going on about Iran. I put up a video actually, and the strange thing is that BB doesn't doesn't age. Apparently, 19 years ago, BB was at the UN talking about the dire threat of Iran imminently getting a nuke, and then last year he was doing exactly the same thing. 19 years later, and he had he hadn't changed, and neither had his story. Uh, so you know, talk about hysterical. It's ridiculous now. Anybody believes this guy, but of course Israel gets a free pass everywhere, no matter what they're doing, because you know. Because it's Israel, um, and they control the world, but <laughs> not really. But you know, sort of. Anyway, um, they uh, yeah, the whole Iran th- thing is interesting because uh, as we noticed, uh, as we were just checking uh, recently, just yesterday or the day before, over the past five, six, seven, eight years uh, since the Iran thing has been on the agenda, there's been several stories from many different sources all claiming that Iran even five or six years ago, already had a nuclear weapon, at least one. And if you got one, 
you've got two, three, four, you know. So which, if that is the case, it puts a very different uh, uh, color on the whole situation of, 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 you know, Netanyahu and various uh, Israeli politicians and American and Western politicians screaming about the threat from Iran, you know. I think most importantly what it speaks to is just how much BS uh, the entire public discourse or the information that is presented to the public is infused with. And it's virtually all nonsense. It's all a show. That what If people were to become aware of what is actually going on behind the scenes, and that here, here and there we get a little glimpse of what is really going on, it's the difference between night and day, basically, from what is told to the public by politicians on major issues and what's actually going on, to the extent of, if you imagine that, that politicians who have been screaming about Iran is going to get a nuclear weapon know that Iran already has one and has had one for several years. Why are they doing it? Well, I mean, obviously one obvious benefit is the thing that we keep coming back to, which is this scaremongering for the world effectively, but particularly for Western populations by Western governments. You know, you've got Al-Qaeda, ISIS, you know, and you've got Iran going to nuke it for 15, the world. For some 10 years, it justified the U.S. installation of missile batteries around Europe. Right. When it was probably to do with Russia. But nevertheless, it was a justification for it. Right, exactly. So they'll just make stuff up and run with that. Let's run with the Iran nuke thing because it'll get us uh, what we want. It'll allow us to do what we want. Pretty much everything that these politicians say is a means to an end. They give you a narrative, give you a story, but it's simply to justify doing something else completely. And that's across the board. Um, so, yeah. Dead air. There's a tumbleweed just blew through. I've got some cultural news. So, I think it's a great idea that the new Twitter CEO should be Snoop Dogg, the U.S. hip-hop artist. I think he's serious. He's starting a campaign to at least become a director of Twitter. What? (laughs) Say that again. Well, Twitter CEO Dick Costello has announced that he's going to resign his post on July 1st. I don't know why, but there's there's something to do with possible merger between Twitter and and something else. Um, Snoop Dogg is trying to get support for it. I think he's serious about putting his money where his mouth is, about taking over Twitter. Why not? Snoop Dogg is going to buy Twitter. He's going to buy Twitter, or at least he's going to buy... Shares in Twitter. He's going to buy... The CEO position. Buy the... Oh, you can buy you a can't, position. You can't, well, you can buy it. Buy well, it, you know. If you buy enough... Well, if you buy enough shares. Yeah. You can become the CEO, I suppose. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, that would be... Uh, whatever. <laughs> Twitter. Oh, my God. Exactly. Um, the There was a serious, serious event today in Georgia. I mean, I, I we've talked about this idea of a human cosmic connection, you know, where the environment starts to reflect the chaotic state of people on the planet. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to say that there's a direct one-to-one connection. So if something happens in a particular place, 
well, who's at fault? Because that's typically what happens. They find a scapegoat and uh, people are blamed. A bit like global warming, you know, blame the people. But there's some seriously poetic, something poetic, I think, to what happened. Uh, obviously, it's just not good for people in uh, Tbilisi. How do you pronounce that? Tbilisi, yep. Capital of Georgia. But uh, so basically, there was a massive, massive downpour. And the river just turned into a wall of water, swept through the city center. Uh, I think something like 17, no, 15 people have been killed, at least. It was so sudden. It There's a zoo in the city center. Uh, <laughs> this is insane. There, it, let, it, swept, well, it swept away the perimeter fence and... It left tigers, lions, bears. Lions and tigers and bears, you mean? Oh, my. <laughs> lions and tigers and bears and hippos. Alligators and wolves roaming the streets. And they were actually starting to gather at the city's main square where... They were going to have a protest. They were going to have a protest and a revolution. There's going to be a new Euromaidan. Euro now, you see, if people don't understand about this, is this is actually a U.S. State Department coup, phony, animal revolution. Right in because Georgia is right on is basically aligned with Russia and right on uh, on, on Russia's border and it was going to be a beachhead into Russia and that's why the lions, tigers, and bears, hippos, and crocodiles were getting together. They're going to set up some tents and uh, then the monkeys with snipers were going to come out <laughs> and start shooting people. And the U.S. would say that the Georgian regime had to go. This was clear mismanagement of the local zoo and that it was not treating the animals properly and animals have rights too. And that the next president should be uh, a lion, a donkey, <laughs> <laughs> a donkey from the U.S. State Department. <laughs> well, they've had sex successfully. I mean, after that, the next one down the evolutionary scale is probably a donkey. Yeah. So, so go for it. Try it out. The next one up the evolutionary scale. Excuse me, up, up. It's it's just so so symbolic. It's it's bizarre. If you let psychopaths take over, this is what happens. I mean, the environment will right. But actually, on a more seri- on a more, more serious note, twenty four people died in those floods. Twenty four in the twenty four okay. people died in those floods in, in Georgia. Which this is getting back to, um, like you just said, the human cosmic connection. There's no direct correlation, as in cause and effect directly. But we see an overall uh, as as human society and human beings. Uh, you know, descend into further and further chaos and, and and cognitive dissonance and believing more and more lies and cheering people like Hillary Clinton, et cetera, et cetera, that there are effects on the planet. The planet's just like, what the hell? You know, you're making me go crazy here. I'm going bonkers. And it just starts to go nuts as well, you know, because it's reflecting the craziness, the effect, effectively the chaos that is in most people's heads yeah. on this planet is reflected. If there's any kind of like tangible kind of energetic value to to the thoughts that are emitted by the billions of people on this planet well then that's a bunch of chaos being shoved right out there into the environment and it's you know it's being mirrored mirrored is the best we can say maybe you know there's no science behind this but uh, no science that we know of uh, it's being mirrored in the environment you know uh, as cra- as craziness and chaos reigns on the planet at a human level it reigns literally and figuratively two different spellings on the planet as well. 
like it rained a lot in Georgia and it's rained a lot, obviously, in uh, many other places over the past few months, as as uh, as, as we've seen uh, with the with the Satsoni reports and stuff. Um, you know, Texas. Everybody knows this from last month. Texas gets uh, is is stuck in a record drought, and then boom, all of a sudden, record rainfall washes everything away, washes all the plants away, all the crop all the crops away. So, uh, and that's just a couple of examples. Obviously, volcanoes going off all over the place, earthquakes in places that there shouldn't be earthquakes, tornadoes in places that there usually aren't tornadoes, uh, like in a Chinese river capsizing a boat and killing 450 people. China's worst ever, ever maritime disaster. Right. Uh, I don't think China gets tornadoes. It's not supposed to. No. Um, Not a hot spot, uh, traditionally. It's snowing again in Alaska. Alaska had a heat wave in April. Right. Flooding in May. And now it's snowing. Hello. Nice. Um, it, you probably noticed uh, on SOT we've got some articles on NLCs, Noctilucent Clouds. Yep, love those. They're cool. And they appear, they, they typically appear this time of year in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, they're appearing very far south. I mean, they'll be seen in Germany, mm-hmm. uh, central U.S. states, central Russia. Uh, it's hard to say if they are further south than ever before, but uh, connected with that, something going on in, this is from spaceweather.com. This is a NASA website. Mm-hmm. And they're reporting that in the last month, there's been a 10% increase in cosmic rays reaching the planet. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Because the sun is dead quiet. Mm-hmm. And people might think, well, they've been led to believe by a whole battery of articles in the last couple of years that, oh, we can expect major disturbances in the electrical grid mm-hmm. because of, we're expecting the sun to be, become super active. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's done the opposite. It's super quiet. And one of the side effects of that is a quieter sun means more cosmic rays penetrate the atmosphere. God knows what that is doing at so many levels. Well, that could be doing... That could be... A, Ramping up the chaos uh, at a human well, and environmental level. Did, did, yeah. It could be making people cheer for Hillary Clinton. Well, that's he, a good excuse to, for me. I mean, that, that's a good NASA explanation. NASA knows what the answer is. It's, it's, here's the last sentence from their article on these night shining clouds. Cosmic rays have also been linked to cloud cover, lightning, and they may play some role in climate change. What do you mean they may play? That is the role in climate change. Yeah. If you've got 10% increase in energy coming from outside the solar system, smacking into the planet. Hello, that's all you need <laughs> to, yeah. to disturb everything. It, yeah, and obviously, it could, yeah. It can send the whole thing fluey and send people fluey. I mean, there's some, I mean, it's speculative, but it could actually be having an effect on, on, on people's behavior as well. Um, like I said, cheering for Hillary Clinton. There's got to be some explanation for that. It's got to be cosmic. There's no earthly reason why anyone would cheer for Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Unless they were being brain damaged by cosmic rays. I would accept that defense. <clears throat> That's the only one. But I didn't know it was the rays. I was being beamed. Yeah, so 
guess what, folks? Um, well, we're coming near the near the end of our show here, but uh, guess what? Uh, yeah, things are the same. Actually, no, they're worse. Things are getting worse. Things haven't got better. Just FYI, in case you're tuning in here to hear that, you know, peace and prosperity and calm and sanity had broken out across the planet. Not yet. It's not really on the horizon. In fact, the horizon's looking pretty dark and foreboding. Uh, things are getting worse on all levels across the board. Craziness is amongst the human population. Uh, psychopathy uh, amongst the elite is both are increasing, um, and the planet is following suit. So there's lots to look forward to in that respect. But for now, what I'm looking forward to is a word from our old friend Relic to keep us up to date on the very important topic of pop culture, where sanity always prevails. <laughs> well, hello, as I welcome you all inside my homemade log cabin snuggled deep in the woods upon the hoar-frosted shores of Upper Lake Canada, where penguins and polar bears frolic amongst the meandering herds of woolly mammoths who dot the horizon like arctic dinosaurs of yore. Where once again we'll dive into the turbulent waters of celebrity culture and stir up the briny muck, searching for shiny pearls of Hollywood news within the writhing green tendrils of superficial excess and bright neon plankton lights. Only coming up for air when the world is safe from hearing yet another imbecilic news tidbit from the Keeping Up with the Kardashian clan. Hmm. I think I'm going to need a bigger oxygen tank. You're going to need a bigger boat. That too, Roy. That too. That's right, kids. It's time for another blistacular edition of Pop Culture Roundup with with your host Relic here, browsing the celebrity metanet for all the juicy Hollywood gossip on our listeners' behalf. In our first related story for the evening, one I'd personally love to file under the category of I couldn't give a rat's ass, even if I had a dub truck full of rat's asses and had just become the newly crowned king of rat-ass island. Oh, but this particular story, well, it's been kind of impossible to ignore on account of uh, appearing on pretty much every celebrity news feed from here to Uranus. It's a story that must be addressed, or else your humble host here would fail at his solemn duty as pop culture correspondent. That's right. 
The story I'm talking about is the much-heralded radical transformation of one-time college football player and guard-a-shade patriarch no more, Mr. Bruce Jenner, into the hormonally-enhanced gender Oreo fleek show known as Caitlyn Jenner who, remaining true to her family's worship of all things superficial, is now 100% woman. On the outside. Heavens to Murgatroyd! Oh, the marvels of modern science. Is there nothing it can't do? A dab of silicone here, a few nips and tucks there, and one strategically placed cut of the knife, and lo and behold... Mr. and Mrs. Bruce Kate Jenner went from former gold medal winning Olympic athlete to absolutely fabulous. Wow, wow, is very nice. On the upside, the Kardashian clan will save a ton of money now that all the girls can share each other's makeup case and swap wardrobes. But on the downside, the Kardashian granddaughter baby Northwest will no longer have a strong, stable male role model in her life. So it goes. Mr. Bruce Jenner, the one-time athletic hero whose masculine picture graced the famous 1976 Wheaties box, is now once again poised to take the breakfast cereal market by storm by putting her recently feminized picture on a box of Fruit Loops. I'd buy that for a dollar. Now, normally, I'm not one to judge. Oh, hell, who am I kidding? I judge everybody. But I can get away with it, you see, because, well, I'm old and I'm cranky and, and I'm crotchety and... I can say things out loud that everybody's secretly thinking, but can't say in public for fear of the politically correct Gestapo who tend to mistake truth for insensitivity. In this particular instance, let me just say that whatever people choose to do with their bodies, however bizarre or Seemingly unnatural, and regardless of any attention-seeking psychological issues, is really nobody's business but their own. There is one thing that kind of sticks in my craw about this whole bucket of worms, and that's the excessively insane amount of media attention this ridiculous non-story has gotten over the last couple weeks when there are so many other important and pressing issues that are being virtually ignored in the news. False flag police state perpetual warmongering drone-killing climate chaos is just the tip of the iceberg. And with the good ship Earth playing the role of the Titanic, it looks like we're all going down on this one together. Although... The new Mr. Mrs. Jenner will likely survive because her silicone implants make excellent flotation devices. And despite the violent and fragile state of our 21st century predicament, all the corporate talking heads on TV seem to care about is the, the new glorious transformation of Braitland Jenner into this newly minted 
faux sexy man woman parroting his her unparalleled bravery for coming out in such a public way. You know, she he was even awarded the Arthur Ashe Courage Award at this year's ESPY ceremonies. Perhaps, in all fairness, openly coming out as a transsexual is not quite as brave as letting some coked-up Hollywood plastic surgeon take a scalpel to your Johnson. Oh, normally I might say something like, that of vixen, vixen good. But in this particular instance, I just have to say that he's already been fixed. He's been fixed real good. You know... I never thought I'd agree with a relative of that crazy couch-jumping Scientologist Tom Cruise. But his 20-year-old DJ son, Connor Cruise, recently took to Twitter and slammed the decision to give Breitland the award, saying that there were many other more courageous people who actually deserved it. You know, I think the young Jack Reacher has a point. We got that right. What's so courageous about having a little plastic surgery anyways? A couple Percocets, some laughing gas, and a few hours later you're right as rain. Perhaps what would really be courageous and brave is for any narcissistic, ratings-hungry, attention-seeking media whore to accept the life they've been given and come to terms with who they are in private and out of the public spotlight. I think they should give that person a gold medal. You're goddamn right. In our last story for the week, the Telegraph's UK newspaper is reporting that screen legend Sir Christopher Lee has passed away in hospital from respiratory problems at the age of 93. Famous for his roles as the evil Count Dracula, the evil Saruman in Lord of the Rings, and the evil Count Dooku in Star Wars, this somewhat versatile, white-bearded English actor appeared in more than 250 films throughout his illustrious career, and in his later years even released several heavy metal music albums. On the Twitterverse, tributes for the late thespian have been pouring in from other famous British actors, including London Mayor Boris Johnson and UK Prime Minister David Cameron. We hear it behind the headlines, hope the iconically eyebrowed actor is a safe and uneventful passage to the other side where he may forever rest in peace amongst the glowing fires of Mount Doom. A new power is rising. Its victory is at hand. And speaking of fires, it's time once again for me to throw some split birch into the old wood stove as seeing as we've come to an end of another show for this week, kids. But before I go, it's old Relic here saying, always remember, keep your feet on the ground and your eyes on the stars. Okay, thanks. <laughs>
that one, like that was uh, very informative as always. Um, yeah. Christopher Lee did heavy metal. Apparently did heavy metal. Yeah. Um, I always like be true relics. That's all. I liked I liked his uh, Hammer Horror kind of B B horror horror movies. You know. Um, but the Code of Mendes. Always think of Hillary Clinton <laughs> when I th- when I see that movie. You know. Go to Mendez, the devil himself appears. Um, anyway, um, we're going to leave it there for this week, folks. Um, next week, we will have a special guest. Uh, and you're just going to have to wait and check the site to find out who it is. Uh-huh. So until then, thanks for listening. And I hope you have a good evening and be safe and all that stuff. See you next week. Bye-bye.